You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. My name is Eric Bonkowski, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. This spring, during our sermon series, I've been starting every sermon with a story of rescue. But today, and this week, as has already been alluded to, we experienced a story of evil. A Monday, sunny Monday morning was interrupted with this shooting at the Covenant School. And yes, there was heroic action taken, courageous intervention by the administration, and uh, rapid response by law enforcement, but there also were six victims. There were families torn apart. There's a church and a school and a whole city that are stunned. There are little Easter dresses hanging in closets that will never be worn. And whenever this happens in our world, we as pastors face a decision. Do we talk about it? Sadly, there are so many tragedies, there's so much heartache that we don't always know what to give our attention to. And we as a church, just as we as individuals, can struggle with compassion fatigue. There's so much sin, there's so much heartache. Do we even have it within us to engage again? But as Harrison has already said, this week, for various reasons, we felt like we had to talk about it. That we as a church have a responsibility to help you feel and think and act in response to the hardest things in life. You know, 10 years ago, after, uh, after the Sandy Hook shooting, I said that Jesus is the story that makes sense of what we're in the midst of, or he's a worthless story. In other words, if God, if Jesus can't deal with what we've been through this week, then we might as well all go home. After another tragedy, I think it was after the shooting at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, I said that sometimes during the week, a sermon gets rewritten because the sermon is bad. And sometimes the sermon gets rewritten because the world is bad. This week is the latter case. That I've rewritten this message because the world is bad. Now, I'm still going to read through the text from Exodus that I was planning on preaching on today. But the message will be a little bit different. And the reason I'm sticking with this passage in Exodus is because Exodus, as we've seen, 
is a story of evil. Evil against good. Good versus evil. It's the story of Egypt, which represents in the Bible a kingdom of death. And Pharaoh, particularly, is a king who represents evil. And the story of the beginning of Exodus is showing that our God, the true God, Yahweh, is bigger than the evil of Egypt. And the story of Exodus is also a story of rescue. It's a story of hope. It's a story of deliverance. It's a story of salvation. And that, friends, is the story that we need to hear today. Now, I'm going to warn you before I read this passage that it starts with a genealogy. And genealogies are hard to read under the best of circumstances. Many churches, many pastors would just skip over them. I'm going to talk later on in the message about this genealogy because I think it's important. But for now, as I read through it, I just want you to remember this. That the genealogy communicates to us that God knows our name. God knows every name. And God cares for every image bearer. So let's give our attention now to God's word. I'm going to read a a longer section today. Exodus 6, verse 14 through Exodus 7, verse 7. This is God's word for us. Here's what it says. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shemei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Malai, and Mushai, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elsaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Isar, Elkanah, and Abisaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Pudiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. 
But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Ebal, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we know that as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth, so your word comes down to us. We ask now for your word to bear fruit in our lives because we know that while the grass fades, the, the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Apply this enduring word to our hearts and to our church today. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Today I want to talk about the idea that we are rescued people. And us being rescued people starts with the fact that we need rescue. And that's what we've seen as we've looked these past 10 weeks now at the beginning chapters of the book of Exodus. Exodus is telling a story of a people who need rescue. It's a people who need rescue from slavery. It's a people who need rescue from death. Because I said, as I said earlier, Egypt represents a country of death. Do you remember when the story opened back in Exodus chapter 1? Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had issued an edict. And that edict was that all of the male children of Israel be killed. Egypt was a country of death. Later on, in chapter 5, which we talked about just a couple of weeks ago, the slavery and the burdens that the Israelites were carrying in Egypt got harder and harder. They were tasked with making bricks for Pharaoh and for his kingdom. And Pharaoh took away one of the main ingredients for making bricks. He interrupted their supply chain and he said, you need to go find straw to make bricks. Life in this country of death was getting harder and harder for the people of Israel. And they responded to Moses and they said, why have you done this? Why have you allowed Pharaoh to raise a sword against us? They lived in a country of death under the threat of constant death. America, in many ways, is a country of death. And we live, friends, in a world of death. It's not just something that I'm saying. This is a truth that the Bible tells us over and over again that ever since the fall, way back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's sin, it, it translated all of us into a country of death, a world of death. Romans 8 tells us that all of creation is in bondage to sin, is groaning in this country of death. And so what we experienced this week was just one more example. 
It's as if the curtain was pulled back for us to see in no uncertain terms that we live in a country, in a world of death. But it's been the case for years and years. It continues to be the case. And it will continue to be the case until Jesus returns. What do we do as people who live in the country of death? Well, Harrison has talked so well already in our service about step one and its lament. It's why we put together this service the way we did, because part of our response to life in the country of death is to feel lament. It's to cry out in pain. Harrison modeled this so well as, uh, on Tuesday in the Good Morning City Church podcast where you could hear the quiver in his voice and you could hear his own tears. He was giving us permission to feel that what happened is not right. That's part of what we need to do. It's probably been reflected this week in your prayers as well. Lament is something we find all throughout Scripture. It's something that we've encountered multiple times already as we've worked our way through these initial chapters in the book of Exodus. The people of Israel lament. They cry out to God. They are groaning. We talked about it last week. That they couldn't listen to Moses. They couldn't trust God because their spirits were broken under their harsh slavery. It says in Exodus 2, chapter 20, uh, verse 24, and these were sort of the, um, the summary verses for this whole series, for me at least, because I think they capture this idea. It says in verse uh, 23 in chapter 2, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry of rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. You see, we lament and we lament because God sees and knows. It says later in chapter 3, and this is uh, during the burning bush, this seminal moment at the beginning of Exodus where Moses discovers the holy God who is calling him to this great task. It says in verse 7, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their suffering. We lament because we know a God who knows us and who cares about the things that we feel and the things that we experience. These aren't cries into the great abyss or to an aloof God, these are cries from our hearts, from the country of death, because we know a God who loves us. We lament. That's how we feel in response to evil. But we also need to, we need to talk a little bit about how we think in response to evil. When things like this week happen, we need to know what to think. We actually had another great model of this on the podcast later in the week with uh, Julie Davis. She talked about this. And she asked this question, maybe a question that you were asking this week as well. I thought it was a profound question. She said, the question is not how did we let this happen, but how did he 
That is God. How did God let this happen? You see, that's an intellectual question. That's a question that in the country of death, when we're faced with evil, that comes readily. A mysterious question. Uh, Theologians and scholars call this a a theodicy. It's the question of how can God be all-powerful and all-good and yet let evil exist? Let nine-year-olds be killed in their schools. It's a fair question. And I'm not going to pretend to resolve it or answer it in the time we have left today. But asking that question and feeling that question for me this week reminded me of the spring of 1999. I realize some of you weren't born then. The spring of 1999 was right when the shooting at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado happened. And I remembered my own questions and struggles, questions with God and struggles with God after that event. And I remembered a journal. I went up into my attic this week and I got my journal from 1999. And I found a page. At the top of the page, it said, Where was God on April 20th, 1999? A couple days after that shooting at Columbine, I was leading a high school Sunday school class at my church. And in that journal were my notes the things that I was going to tell these high school students to help them make sense of the evil that we all had just experienced. I don't know how much I helped. But what I tried to point them to is the same thing I want to try to point you to, that our God is bigger than this evil. And that beyond the mystery of why bad things happen to good people is a God who rescues us from this country of death. A God who sent his own son to undo death and to roll back all evil. You know, there's mystery like that in the very passage I read this afternoon. In in verse uh, 3 in chapter 7, God says to Moses, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Right? Moses is called to deliver the people, but God knows ahead of time that evil is going to put up quite a fight. But... We know in the story of Exodus and we know in the broader story of the world that evil, though it often looks strong, will not win. It does not win. God wins. And you see, this leads to the the second thing we need. Beyond lament, we need hope. We need hope today. We need to think about the hope that is ours through Christ Jesus. And in fact, hope is embedded within lament. Every time we cry out, why? Why is there evil? Why is there hurt? Why is there brokenness? We are longing for a different world, a different reality. Our hope is embedded in our lament. It's it's stating, it's crying out into the darkness that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And it's saying, God, come quickly and make things right. 
Our hope lies in the fact that God is devastated by evil. His heart is broken for those who died in Nashville, just as his heart is broken every time evil raises its head in this world. He is not sitting by lightly. He is groaning with us. And he has sent his spirit to groan alongside us. But it's not just that God is devastated by evil. It is that God has acted to deliver us and this whole world from evil. That's the rescue. That's our hope. I talked about it last week, but it bears repeating that our hope in these moments, that feel hopeless, that feel devastating, is God's I am, I have, and I will. Our hope, our answer to this question is to remind ourselves of God's character. I am a God who loves you and always will. It's reminding ourselves in these moments of what God has done. I have heard. I have remembered my covenant. I have promised to always be with you, even as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And our hope is remembering what God says he will do. I am, I have, I will I will set all things right. I will roll back the stone and I will roll back evil. Our hope is that we are rescued people. Meg's prayer talked about uh, the foretaste of that we get in the story of Lazarus. Jesus' friend. Another question of this mystery of God is good and powerful. Why did he let his friend die? Well, he Jesus has the power of resurrection. Our hope is in the hope of Easter. It's in the hope of the cross, right? What does God do about evil? Well, to undo evil, He sends His Son. And He sends His Son to die. Which, if you think about it, is the most evil act ever in the history of the world. The only begotten Son of God, the innocent Son of God, dies. He bears the burden of sin for us. He takes the judgment on all evil on his own body. And then three days later, he rises from the dead. The resurrection The sign that death is done, that evil will not win. We have to remind ourselves of this hope when we feel hopeless. We lament and we we hope. But there's a final move we have to make, I think. We lament, we hope, and we act. In my journal, after Columbine, there was a question that was being asked. I think it was a pastor who asked this at the funeral for one of the students who was killed that day. And he said, who will pick up the torch? Who will pick up the torch? After Sandy Hook, there were many of us who looked around and said, if we allow this to happen to kindergarten students, to six-year-olds killed in their own school, and don't do anything, we might as well give up. And I'll be honest, that was the main feeling that I had on Monday. 
Unlike others in our church, I didn't have a personal connection to the Covenant School or to the pastor there. And so it was hard for me to feel. I feel so desensitized by all of these strategies, all of this evil. I didn't know what to feel. But the primary thing I felt this last week was I've got to do something. I can't just wait until the next news story comes. Maybe closer to home this time. Maybe a personal connection for me this time. Maybe in Richmond. Because lament and hope lead us into action. To put it simply, rescued people rescue people. That's the premise here. That if we understand the rescue of God, if we believe what Exodus is saying, if we believe what the cross and the resurrection is saying, we become people of rescue. Moving out into this world, this country of death, this world that's in bondage to evil, and we become rescuers of others. And friends, that's precisely what I think this genealogy is all about. I told you I was going to get back to it. The genealogy, the main reason that we have this genealogy is to prove to us, to demonstrate to us, that Moses and Aaron are human. That's why we have all these names. And not just that they are human, that we can trace their family tree, but they are messy human. Just like you and me. Because embedded in this genealogy, we learn this little detail that Moses, is, Moses and Aaron's father Oh yeah, he married his aunt. That was frowned upon. still is. It's taboo. And also in this genealogy, if we have eyes to see, we realize that uh, one of the Israelites married a Canaanite woman. Another one married an Egyptian woman and had sons through Egypt. You see, it's messy. In the, in the backstory of Moses and Aaron, there's all sorts of sin. There's all sorts of drama. There's all sorts of trauma. Why? What do we care about that? Well, your backstory has the same thing. It's full of sin and drama and trauma. And if God can use Moses and Aaron, God can use you too. You know, the, the, the theme of this whole sermon series, Exodus 1 through 6, it's, it's kind of this story, it's the backstory of Moses, it's the making of a hero, but we've talked about how he's a reluctant hero, how he's a hesitant hero. He's got excuse after excuse of why he shouldn't play any role in rescuing Israel. But in this genealogy, we're told a couple of times in verses uh, 26, it says, these are the Aaron and Moses. And then in verse 27, it says, uh, this Moses and this Aaron, this messy, human, broken vessel will become an agent of the rescue of God, just like you. There's another clue to this genealogy in terms uh, that, that we can pick up on by seeing what comes right after it. It actually comes right before it too, but those words weren't printed in the worship guide this week. You see, this genealogy is sandwiched right in between Moses saying the same thing. 
He says, how then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? And in verse 30, it says the same thing. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? You see, with Moses saying, I'm of uncircumcised lips, what he means, what he's getting at there is he's saying, I'm not sure I'm part of the promise. I'm not sure I'm part of your purpose, God. Because circumcision was a sign of being part of God's promise. It was a sign of being a rescued person. And Moses, throughout all these chapters, has been wondering time and time again, am I in? Do I have what it takes? Have I been touched by your grace? Have I been rescued by you, God? That's why he says, who am I to go to Pharaoh? How can I confront the king of death? How can I play any part in pushing back against the empire of evil? Moses has been conflicted his whole life, right? Born a Hebrew and placed in that little raft in the Nile River. Remember that part of the story? And then he was raised in the Egyptian court. He was a prince of Egypt. But after that, he fled. He fled out of Egypt to Midian, and he was a shepherd there. And it's only uh, as an 80-year-old man that he finds his way back to Egypt because God has put this call on his life, but he's not so sure. Do I have what it takes? Do I believe the promise of rescue? Can I play a part in pushing back the country of death. And so God answers him at the beginning of chapter 7. Did you catch that? Look again at verse 1. To doubting Moses, to reluctant Moses, to hesitant Moses, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. God is reiterating his calling on Moses' life. And he says, I have a purpose for you. And it is for you to represent me in the country of death. It is for you to be my prophet. It is for you and Aaron, your brother, to be my priests. And this is returning humanity to their basic fundamental purpose, what they were created for. Because when God made the Garden of Eden and he created Adam and Eve, he put them there to be priests, to represent him over all the world. You shall be like God to Pharaoh, just as Adam and Eve were meant to be like God over all creation. It's a restoration of our fundamental purpose that wherever we go, whatever we do, we are to image God. The God who is life himself. We image him in a country of death. God is saying in, in, in so many words, I am your rescuer and I am the rescuer of Israel and I want you to demonstrate that to Israel and I want you to demonstrate that to Pharaoh. Go to him as a person who knows he's been rescued and become a rescuer yourself. You are a priest of rescue 
And friends, so are you. If you are a Christian, if the Spirit of the living God is in you by faith, you are a priest of rescue. You are a rescued person who ought to rescue people. Now, I know this is hard because any rescue that we are a part of in this world is approximate rescue. That is, it is only uh, a partial. It will not be complete, and that's frustrating. It's hard to live in this in-between. Knowing that the exodus has begun, but we haven't reached the promised land. But you and I are called by God to take action in the trajectory of rescue. Facing down the country of death, we are to be agents of life wherever we go. And friends, it's terribly uh, difficult to stand up here and tell you exactly what that should look like. I'm very hesitant to offer any policy solutions, any legislative solutions, but I absolutely will exhort all of you to do something to act out this rescue, to be a rescuer, what might that look like? Well, for some of you, it might look like this issue of gun violence that seems to be a particular American problem. I don't know the solutions, but could you be a person who helps figure out those solutions? For some of you, it may be around uh, prudential security of our schools and of our churches, of any place in our society that would be a soft target. I don't have those gifts and abilities to think through all of that, but maybe you do. You could be a rescuer by doing that. And maybe it's in mental health, addressing that epidemic within America. I don't have those particular expertise, but maybe you do. Or maybe it has to do with these messy genealogies. Maybe you're a person that God is calling to step into the drama and trauma and sin of other people's lives. You know, one of the things that I told those high school kids 20-some years ago, I asked this, but what are you doing to accept the outcast, to speak to the lonely, to care for the hurting? What if we were people who rescued people before they got to the point of despair, that they would arm themselves to go take other life? Who might you interact with this week? Ask them their name. Call that person that you've been meaning to call, but you haven't done it. Pursue that person who you know has demons and a mental health history, but bears the image of God. Or maybe you'll be a rescuing person by courageously intervening 
in a moment of crisis. When a Sunday money, Monday morning turns sour. But because, of you, because you know your hope, because you're living with the Spirit of God inside you, you will not flee or cower. But like Catherine Kunz, you'll run. Run towards a shooter protect, to protect the kids in your school. There are many possible pathways. I don't know what yours is. But if you, like me, want to be a person who does something, will you let me know? I've talked to a few other people this week who've said, yeah, I feel the same thing. And we need each other. Email me. Let's talk. Let's get a group of people together who know that we've been rescued and who want to be the people of rescue. How do we respond to evil? We lament. We sing songs that help us to groan anytime we're reminded of evil. We hope. We hope in the certain promises of a resurrection and a new life in Christ. And we act. We act as rescued people. That our lives might light the path to the new Jerusalem. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the rescue that is ours, certainly through Jesus Christ. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to move in us individually and corporately to call us out in lament and hope and faithful action that we might be pictures of your rescue to a world that is in bondage to death. We pray this all through the power and name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.